Welcome back to the Facts About PACS. I'm Michaela Isler, NAPACS Executive Director. It's March 24th, 2022, and we have all been witnessing Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine for a month now, Adam Belmar. Indeed, Michaela, the unbridled aggression against a sovereign nation and the brutal campaign conducted by Russian forces has been horrific to watch. And the impact on American foreign affairs, our national security and politics continues to grow. But even still, Adam, the work of government continues. And, you know, the confirmation hearings in the United States Senate Judiciary Committee this week for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson are coming to a close. And the ability of lobbyists, constituents and advocates to re-engage personally with members and staff on Capitol Hill continues slowly to return to normalcy. On the show today, Michaela, we are joined by the 2022 president of Nile, the National Institute for Lobbying and Ethics, Jocelyn Hong. You know, she is such a strong voice for lobbyists, Adam, and someone with terrific insights into both how D.C. works and the power of association. Coming up in a minute, our conversation with Jocelyn Hong. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NABPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. And today's episode is brought to you by Quorum. The leader in public affairs software has acquired the leading pack management solution, Cision Pack. Together, Quorum and Cision Pack's teams are building Quorum Pack, a new and modern pack management solution to help pack managers collect donations, increase pack participation, and file with ease. Cision's pack relationships and experience combined with Quorum's proven ability to create best-in-class tools public affairs professionals love will allow them to create a modern software that is trustworthy, innovative, and integrated. Thanks, Adam. And and also thanks to Quorum. They've been a great supporter of NAPAC and the show. I'm excited to see where this combined organization goes from here. Two great organizations becoming even better. Joining us now to talk about her leadership at Nile and the continued importance of employee-funded and business trade association PACs is Jocelyn Hong. Welcome to the podcast, Jocelyn. Thank you, Michaela and Adam. It's good to be here. So Jocelyn, I'm so excited that you've taken the reins at Nile. And just like NAPAC, the premier association for business PACs, Nile is the premier trade association for the lobbying and government affairs profession and is focused on continuing education, the promotion of ethical lobbying. What should everyone listening know about what's new at Nile? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, we just concluded about two months ago our diversity, equity, and inclusion code of professional standards. And this is a comprehensive document that looks at everything from infrastructure, such as building the practice, the self-assessment and reporting, education and training, really a lot of focus on hiring and pipeline initiatives, as well as the important issue of retention. We took about a year and a half to put this standard together, this code of professional standards together, and you know, for the most part, we had a nice, diverse team of lobbying professionals with input from the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the CBC lobbyists, and LGBTQ lobbyists. And I represent H Street Group, which is a group of about 160 Asian Pacific American public policy advocates, as well as registered lobbyists. And so I think we had a nice, diverse group 
to weigh in about what DEI should look like in the advocacy sector. You know, Jocelyn, I love the work that you all are doing here in this space, and it really aligns with a lot of what NAPAC's been doing as well. We are actually in our third year of our DEI strategic initiatives and planning. And I think one of the things you touched on really aligns with what we're doing too is hiring and building a pipeline of diverse professionals that come into both lobbying and PAC and grassroots management and certainly know that we'll have an opportunity, hopefully, to work together because that just is a critically important for us as well as an organization. You have been involved in elevating professionals in many different ways over your career. Uh, 18 years ago, as you mentioned, you helped launch the H Street Group as a vehicle for Asian American lobbyists. Love to hear a little bit more about H Street and how bipartisanship has been key to that group's success. Yes. So H Street started, um, again, about 18 years ago, and there were about six of us that would meet. And I think I am actually one of the first Asian American female lobbyists to work in a boutique situation, because whenever something would come up in the federal space, I would always get the phone call. And I'm thinking, well, how does that happen? And people would say, you've got to call Jocelyn Hong. And so it turned out like sort of all roads led to me just because I was one of, again, the first Asian American women to actually open my own shop in 1992. And what I realized about two years after doing that is that the world was not ready for a female solo proprietor. And even 20 years later, I would talk to people who said, you know, we really wanted to hire you, but my people were concerned that you were going to just get married and pregnant and then their investment would be gone. So, you know, having to put up with that type of characterization of, of who I was as a career person was was very difficult. I got to tell you, I'm speechless. I mean, I just, it's amazing that you've hung in there and you've made such a great name for yourself and hats off to you for sticking with it. Well, I like to tell people that you have to be resilient. People always say, what's the key ingredient to being a lobbyist? And I think it's really about resiliency is that you never accept no for an answer. In fact, that's another kind of funny off story where a member of Congress who I had worked with her staff pretty closely, we had actually created a facility in her district with her help. And I was at her fundraising event and somebody said to her, hey, can I introduce Jocelyn Hong? And she looked at me and she said, no, you don't need to introduce her. I know who she is. This is the woman who doesn't take no for an answer. And I looked at her and I said, well, can I use that in my marketing materials? Because you know, no one actually pays you to get no. That's pretty easy to get. So my job is to get yes. And I'm hopeful that I didn't step on a lot of hands along the way, but you're hired for yes. You're not hired for no. People can get no all by themselves. Absolutely right. Great point. I do want to double back though, because I want to press you on that question that Michaela asked, because I think that it is deeply rooted in the success that you've had personally, certainly, but as a uh, element of this association at H Street. And that is bipartisanship, bringing people not just in their advocacy, but in their association from both sides of the aisle together to find common ground. And that's a key entrepreneurial spirit as well. Will you talk about that? Yeah, I'd love to. I will tell you, it actually was very difficult in the beginning to keep the bipartisanship going because there's always a tendency for people to want to hew in one direction because that's what they feel most comfortable with. But um, I'm very fortunate. I was with a firm that was bipartisan for 18 years, and I hosted fundraisers for 18 years for people on both sides of the aisle. So I got to know really well 
like very conservative Republicans and very liberal Democrats. And I think all of them will walk away saying that I am a friend. I, as a lobbyist, would always want to work with somebody who may be diametrically opposed to me, but understood why, because those are the people you can negotiate with. They understand where their positions come from and they understand what they can give away and what they can accept and still not, you know, they understand what it is they're doing as opposed to someone who's just sort of parroting what someone told them. They have no ability to negotiate. So I've always been one to try to find the person who may be diametrically opposed to me, but I understand where they're coming from because then you can establish what the common ground is and where you can work on getting an outcome together. And H Street Group, I mean, really, when you think about registered lobbyists, for a long time, we actually were only focused on networking with registered Asian American lobbyists. And that was because our concerns are different. Our interests are different. We have to be bipartisan. You know, a lot of times when you're representing a client you know, they may have territory in someone who's diametrically opposed to them on a personal level, but that person is on a committee that's important to them, or that person is, you know, working in a party affiliation that's important to them. So I think hearing from both sides of the aisle is always very helpful. And we came at it from an empowerment standpoint. There were so few of us that we really didn't want to isolate a couple people when you know we knew we were much stronger working together. And so that's been a key component of success. I will say that it we saw it in action with the anti-Asian hate crimes, where on the Republican side of the aisle, we had our Senator Maisie Hirono from Hawaii, who was offering the legislation. And you know, a lot of Republicans were not very happy with her because of her star role in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And you know, we had to get high level, we have high level chiefs, former chiefs of staff at um, H Street Group who are able to talk to the Mitch McConnells and the Roy Blunts and the Marco Rubios and get them to, you know, basically agree to support her legislation. And the concession they had was tell the Democrats to stop saying it's Trump or that it's white supremacists and we'll agree to it. So we went to the Democrats and we said, from this day forward, that's what we're looking at is there's all this crime happening. And so from this day forward, we're not going to mention Trump or white supremacists. We're just going to talk about hate crimes in general, and we're not going to put a color on it. And I think that that's what worked. We passed the legislation in the House by an overwhelming majority, but in the Senate it was like 97 to 1. So that's the fruit of the labor. I mean, if we didn't have the H Street Group Republicans, we probably would not have been able to push a Democratic bill forward. Jocelyn, the issues uh, you work on matter a great deal to you. Is that one of the reasons you left Capitol Hill for the private sector? That That is one of the reasons. Um, I worked for a really charismatic member of Congress who made things happen, Dennis Eckert. You may remember him for older people that he was the debate partner to Lloyd Benson. And he's the one that came up with the Dan Quayle line where um, Benson was able to say, I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. You're no Jack Kennedy. And so um, I enjoyed working for him. His politics were a little bit different than mine. And the best part about opening your own shop is I had this illusion that I would be able to work on the issues I cared about, which is what I do on a pro bono basis. And it doesn't mean I don't love the clients that I work with. I have a client that I've had for 26 years, if you can imagine that. So 
I'm very passionate about what I get involved in. And I think that that's what brings you success is it, it's that whole adage. If you enjoy what you do, then you're never really working a day in your life. So Jocelyn, what advice do you have for the political professionals who listen to this show who are passionate about making a difference in their work? My advice is that you should always be living outside your comfort zone. I think that what we do is very much entrepreneurial. And the reason I went into it was because I wanted to learn something new every day. And so sometimes I'm learning about a new issue, about a new type of organization, or sometimes it's even about learning a new aspect of my business, or it's a new aspect of someone else's business. Like, how do you take something to the next level? And, you know, again, how do people, I get that question all the time is how do people get involved in this? And I was mentoring a young woman just the other day and I had looked at her resume and I said, you know what, you have all the pieces. You have a jigsaw puzzle in front of you. You need to learn how to put the puzzle together. And I think that's where a lot of professionals are coming from is that they have the education, they have some of the experience, and they probably have all the talent to make something happen. It's just that magical element of how do you put that jigsaw together? Or do you need to go out and get some more pieces to fill in the puzzle? So Jocelyn, let's switch gears a little bit. We are the Facts About PAGS podcast. Let's talk about employee-funded and business trade association PACs. Obviously, goes hand-in-hand with advocacy and lobbying. You understand the space and the fundraising needs on all sides. What guidance do you give candidates flirting with this idea of taking a no-corporate PAC pledge? I fight that really stringently. (laughs) I tell people that all the time, that it's ridiculous not to take corporate PAC dollars. I think there are some Democrats that are saying, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll start taking union PAC dollars. But I don't think that's a fair analysis because in the end, it is still individuals that are employed with a company or a union that are making their voices known. And I think you have to consider that in a political action committee, the average contribution could be $200. And so you are losing out on a lot of input from people who do care. And with elections being so expensive, I have a friend who was a committee chairman and he was having to raise $5 million for his seat. So I told my clients that it comes out to about $321 for every hour he's alive for two years or $3,800 for every hour of a 40 hour work week. So when you talk about a meet and greet or, you know, something that's not contributing to his bottom line, you know, you got to think he's got to be raising on average $3,800 for every working 40 hour week. And we all know members of Congress work way more hours than that as their staff do. And so it is a interesting thing to get into discussions about contributions and, and PAC dollars, because I also like to tell people especially my clients. I said, you know, if you went to a law firm and they got a $3 million judgment, you would think nothing about paying their legal fees of $300,000. So think of the member of Congress as the name law partner at a firm. And when you're working with their LAs, those are their law firm associates. And when you decide to do a political contribution to help support them, I'm not seeing why you're balking at $10,000, you know? I mean, it's like, it's a tough job. And I was even meeting with a number, another member of Congress 
who was bemoaning the fact that his dues to the DCCC were $250,000. And he said, I get elected with $100,000. So now I'm just working most of the time raising money in an area that's very impoverished to try to come up with $250,000 just so I can be in good standing with the political party. So a lot of people don't understand that it's actually very expensive once you get elected to Congress that you have to basically pay for your committee seat, pay for your chairmanship. Oh, and by the way, if you don't give your dues to the DNC or the RNC, people are wondering when the convention was going to be in Wisconsin, why their delegation was staying in Chicago. It is a remarkable, multifaceted universe that is campaign finance in America. And I think it's really refreshing to hear a practitioner who's been in this town for so long, hails from Hawaii, and is teaching all of us about how politics works on Capitol Hill. I get frustrated, as I'm sure you all do, with people who think, oh, well, why do I even need a lobbyist? Why why can't I just go and talk to my member of Congress? Well, Well, you can. But it's kind of like having construction on your house. You go to a general contractor, but there are all these different people that do different parts. But if you just stand there and think, well, why can't I talk to my elected officials? Why are they not going to fix my house? I mean, it's kind of the same thing, is that you need to have a budget. And we are force multipliers. We help get your message out. And we're the ones that make a five-minute conversation on the Senate floor happen between two senators, and there's probably about 150 hours of work that went into that five-minute conversation. But if you're from a big state like California, and you've got you know, half the country located in your one state, it's going to be hard to spend time. Like You don't ever have enough hours in the day to really help every constituent that needs help. And that's why even the offices in the Senate are apportioned based on the size of your state. So if you're from a big state, you've got a large Senate office. If you're from a small state, you have a smaller office. But that just recognizes, you know, how many people, you know, you need to be covering. And so, you know, there's some thoughts that California could be split up because who can handle a state that large? I mean, who can be one of two senators in California versus being one of two senators in Iowa or Hawaii, where we only have like, you know, two In Hawaii, we have two members of Congress and two senators, so no one understands why you're running for the Senate, because they don't see that as an increase in job responsibility. I'm hearing, I'm liking the force multipliers, and we say, you know, here at NAPAC, and that we're powered by people. And we are out there educating millions of employees, not only about the issues, but how to get involved, good government, civic engagement, you know, how to find out even who your elected official is. Uh, and then hopefully figure out how to go get registered to vote and get out there and vote. So important work both of our organizations are doing. I just want to get your thoughts on any parting advice that you would have for PAC managers listening about the value of their skill sets. This is a a very strong community here in Washington, D.C., full of PAC professionals that are part of these larger government affairs teams at their organizations. So what advice would you have? Well, this is something I wish that would happen is I would love to have more education about who PACs are and what they do and why they're important, because it would make my job so much easier. And it is something that the reason I decided to become to, I was asked to be president of Niall was really because I would be frustrated every time I heard people 
saying terrible things about lobbyists. I mean, it just really breaks my heart because I feel like I'm a fairy godmother because I help people's dreams come true. I think we helped build a United Community Center in Florida. We've helped to keep beaches from eroding and from having to have natural disasters where you don't have a sacrificial beach. We've helped low-income people get affordable housing because their houses were getting flooded every three years. And so I do feel that there needs to be a lot more education to the public as to what PACs are and how they operate and how they help people in the system, You know how they help your elected member have a voice. And it's really disarming to me that the people that have very inflammatory statements about what political money is in campaigns are able to control the dialogue and the prevailing opinions because it's not negative. It's not necessarily a negative thing to have the ability to talk to your member of Congress and to have impact on how something turns out that affects you. And it's you putting in your sweat equity. So my advice is to PAC managers is to try to get a bigger public relations budget so that you can tell people what it is you're doing and why and what you guys stand for. So many similarities between our two organizations, so much misinformation around what the good work you do as a lobbyist and the good work that our organizations do with their PACs, probably some job security for years to come, right? A lot of work to do for all of us. Jocelyn Hong, 2022 Nile president, thank you for joining us on the Facts About PACs podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone, as always, for downloading and sharing the show. Subscribe and meet us right back here at the Facts About PACs podcast.